China is a rapidly modernizing nuclear-armed near-peer on a trajectory to become a peer power to the United States. There really was a market shift. This is not their father's PLA, definitely not their grandfather's PLA. It harbors global ambitions and is increasingly assertive in the competition space, using its economic clout and information operations to bolster its position and undermine its adversaries. If you look at the PLA's own history, they have a history of being able to overcome a superior technological foe through the force of human will and large numbers. You know, think of People's War, think of the Korean War. China's People's Liberation Army lacks combat experience, but is a formidable force that is working diligently to not only introduce new capabilities, but also to improve its training and leader development. It is our most technologically sophisticated adversary. Another important component of how the PLA sees AI is in the realm of decision support, or essentially the notion of an alpha-go for warfare. This is The Convergence, the Army's mad scientist podcast. You have to understand sort of where they came from to understand where they are today. And if you think about sort of that progress, it's utterly remarkable. And today we're talking with subject matter experts to determine how China fights. My name is Peter Wood. I'm a program manager for the China OSINT program at Blue Path Labs. I've been studying the PLA for over 10 years now in various capacities with a special focus looking at the Chinese defense industry. When I first started studying the, the PLA in, in the 2000s, um, it was a pretty sclerotic organization, but I think we had the, the first real hints of, of what was likely to come. A lot of the countries around China had, had really kind of dismissed it for uh, for most of the, the 80s and 90s. It just wasn't considered to be a real actor because uh, it, it, it wasn't in terms of, of training wasn't realistic. The systems they fielded were, were out of date, uh, but really beginning you know, around 2004, even, you know, we saw the kind of the first hints of, of what the PLA was was going to become. But it's it's also clear, even in open source, that that there were real technological bottlenecks that limited its ability to to operate far from home. Um, training was was very scripted. Professional military education was not very well organized. Um, and as we've seen things come out from their, you know, anti-corruption campaign, uh, it's very clear that many officers, you know, owed their positions to bribe. So this wasn't going to be a, you know, a combat effective organization. Um, you had real deficiencies across the range of, of systems and you know, training and, and, and personnel. Um, but if you fast forward today, we've seen real efforts to, to address all of those issues. Um, taking the 2016 reforms of the PLA as, as a milestone and, and some of these subsequent ones, um, these, you know, most famously created the, the new joint theater commands, uh, but really affected the entire PLA. Uh, you know, Chinese writings emphasize that that you had kind of two phases of this: the the above the neck, the the kind of core level and above, but also below the neck. You know, essentially everything else, every other component of the the PLA. Um, and in 2017 and 2018, we've seen a succession uh, of organizational changes. You know, uh, acceleration of the shift to a brigade battalion structure, reemphasis on what they call new type combat forces. Um, which means, you know, integration of, you know, larger, the fielding of a larger number of uh, army aviation units, for example, their standing up of additional special forces and other specialized units like, you know, cyber and drone units uh, to help the PLA conduct much more sophisticated operations. My name is Ian Sullivan. I'm the senior advisor for analysis and ISR at the TRADOC G2. Uh, my main job is to set the analytic lines that go into the Army's near-term operational environment assessment. 
when I came into the intelligence community in the in the mid '90s, the People's Liberation Army really wasn't that different from the the force that won the Chinese Civil War. Uh, you know that started in 1949. I mean, okay, they had they had some some more modern equipment, but really not that much more. They they honestly were an anachronism in some ways. They were you know they they would have been more at home with with the fights of the Second World War than than the fights of Desert Storm. And Desert Storm was such a huge wake up call for the for the PLA, and that's when they started studying us in depth to figure out what they had to do to change. And I, you know, I think where they are today directly relates to to that wake up call as they as they moved forward. You have to understand sort of where they came from to understand where they are today. And if you think about sort of that progress, it's utterly remarkable in how much they've sort of crammed in a, a relatively short time. So they they completed their Desert Storm study in the mid '90s, and then. Then they wake up and they see OIF kick off, and so they studied that as well. And and you know, really since since the early two thousands, they've they've been working hard to change. What they've done in the last you know five or six years has has been remarkable. They've they've jumped generations. But one of the reasons they've jumped generations, I think, is because of their focus on technology. And they've you know their economy boom. They had the resources resources that the Russians would dream of, right? I mean, their ability to work on everything, all of this great new high-tech stuff, all these these new systems, uh, you name it, they're, they're working on it. And um, I think that's sort of driven some of their, their thinking. And so I think they've become much more capable on the tech end. It's taken a little bit more time for the theory end to catch up with it. So where we talked about the Russians had a sort of a tradition of a, of a thinking officer corps, right? That wasn't really the Chinese tradition, and so, so there's a there's a catch up game coming between their their high tech end and their ability to conceptualize the fight and what it is that they want to do. So I think that as they as they move forward, I think thinking that they talked about you know local wars under informationized conditions just as recently as a couple of years ago, which was very much sort of some of our thinking, right? Sensor to shooter kinds of things. Looking at looking at systems of systems and how to impact them, when you think about where they were, literally just ten years before that is a remarkable advancement. And I think a lot of that is based on the the idea that they were able to sort of get all of this technology. I'm Elsa Kenya, and I'm an adjunct senior fellow with the Technology National Security Program at the Center for New American Security. And my research focuses primarily on Chinese military innovation and emerging technologies, uh, including in comparative and historical perspective. Certainly as the PLA undertakes some of its major training exercises, which it characterizes as actual combat training, seeing drones everything from sort of tactically used in electronic warfare, which is perhaps a major asymmetry between the U.S. and Chinese militaries, whereas electronic warfare is something the PLA has really focused on kind of cultivating capabilities and training with and for and under complex electromagnetic conditions. The U.S. is more accustomed to operating in a less contested environment in recent history. So the use of drones for jamming is certainly, I think, something to, to watch out for going forward. And I think beyond that, there's starting to be more experimentation of 
integration uh, and teaming between uh, manned and unmanned platforms. And I think a lot of the sort of ways the PLA is using drones today, such as also for logistics support, even using small commercial drones to deliver supplies to troops in far-flung areas or possibly should we imagine a future scenario of Chinese invasion of Taiwan? Could we see drones also supporting some of the uh, logistics and transport function at scale and in a way that could uh, fill a gap in China's current capabilities to cross the strait in, in, in practice? So I think the ways in which drones could be used in future operations are only limited by the PLA's imagination, perhaps, and, and ours in, uh, in understanding and assessing how these capabilities are starting to come into play. Hi, my name is Kevin Paul-Peter. I'm a senior research scientist at CNA. For more than 20 years, I have been researching China's military modernization with a focus on its space program and information warfare. And now more recently, I am focusing on China and artificial intelligence. If China believes that the U.S. military is still superior to the Chinese military, well, of course, then this is one way of evening the odds uh, against the U.S. military, you know, because AI and autonomy are sort of greenfield technologies, right? The U.S. does not have an absolute advantage over China in this regard. So this is this is a way where, where China can, can sort of jettison all of those legacy systems and concentrate on, on the future. Uh, on the other hand, though, and this is unsaid, of course, is is what are the implications then for China when it's when it's looking at countries, let's say the Philippines or Vietnam or, or looking at a war with Taiwan? You know, does the PLA now have to consider what sort of lesser militaries will be able to do to to counter China's military uh, action? So so it actually counters both ways uh, uh, for China. But I think where they haven't necessarily caught up is, like I said, in that that conceptual phase of warfare and on the military art and science. So as a result of this, I think the Chinese are, are very much think of warfare as science and not art. You know, at least that's a that's my observation. I'm, I'm sure others could argue it. But as a result of that, you don't see things that you see in you know, the U.S. Western militaries talking about, um, you know, things even that the Russians do. Right. I mean, initiative. Uh, Mission Command, for example. Mission Command doesn't truly exist in, in Chinese thinking. Even though they sometimes try to talk about things that sort of look like Mission Command, they're, they're not really there yet. They are more centralized. And in fact, I, I think they think, they believe that their way of war will be centralized. I often, for example, end up arguing with folks about, you know, one of the questions I inevitably get is, but the Chinese don't have an NCO Corps, a professional NCO Corps. And and I'll say, well, what if they're designing a force that doesn't need one, right? And that's that's always a bold statement that make, makes people's mouth drops or, or make them shake their head or or make them initially discount whatever it is I'm saying after it. But but I think it's a, it's a real fact, right? I think that that's the force they're trying to create. So it's why the Chinese are so interesting. They're, they're so different from us on, in so many ways. And they're I think they're trying to create an approach to warfare that that is utterly different from ours in some way. And so to see how they match up I think is is really fascinating. It's, I guess, a legitimate question to say which which way works best, right? Because neither side's had to deal with an adversary like the other. China's intelligent warfare is the uniquely Chinese concept of applying artificial intelligence's machine speed and processing power to military planning, operational command, and decision support. 
One of the main findings of our report is that the PLA is still discussing, still debating what intelligent warfare is. Um, and in fact, uh, really, we, we found no official definition of intelligent warfare. And, and, and in fact, we found a couple of sources that said outright that there is actually no consensus about what intelligent warfare is and, and its future implications. But having said that, when looking at the discussions of intelligent warfare, we find that you know they're centering on on answering the same types of questions that the U.S. military is trying to to figure out with the use of AI and autonomy. Um, it's looking at the uh, human role in warfare, the C two of autonomous systems, uh, the effects of AI and autonomy on strategic stability, um, and the ethics and arms control process for AI. Um, and so when settling on this, there are some broad themes that we have been able to sort of think about or tease out from the writings. And, and one is, is really that intelligent warfare is really the extensive use of AI and autonomy in all military applications, whether it's combat, logistics, what have you. Um, and so in this way, it, it's different from informatized warfare. Um, and, and the writings that we see say that it's actually an evolution of, of informatized warfare. And if you think of informatized warfare as what we would call really net-centric warfare, um, and it really focuses on computers and network systems to link together the sensor and the shooter. And with intelligent warfare, what they're really talking now is about the extensive use of AI and autonomy, especially uh, in decision making. Um, and so it's sort of a step up above about what informatized warfare uh, really is about. And, and so there are some broad themes here that we found in these writings about how intelligent warfare will, will change the nature of warfare. And one is really the, the extensive use of unmanned systems as the main combat force, and that there will be a, a move away from warfare being people-centric to becoming more machine or robot-centric. Um, because of this, there's, there's discussion about how warfare will uh, exist in an expanded battle space because unmanned systems will be so prevalent. Combat will become more frequent in domains where, where humans really can't exist or operate very easily. So think of outer space, deep space, the polar regions. There's going to be a lot more emphasis on cyber and electromagnetic uh, uh, domains. Um, and, and in particular, there's going to be an increasing emphasis on achieving superiority in the uh, cognitive domain, the, the ability to sort of, uh, uh, you know, the perceptions of affecting the perceptions uh, uh, of the enemy. My name is Amanda Kerrigan, and I'm a research scientist at CNA. At CNA, my portfolio has included the development and governance of AI and autonomy in China, and also the topic of China's economic statecraft, especially within a COVID-19 context. They produced an entire series in the PLA Daily specifically on the importance of data in military intelligentization. And that term military intelligentization is sort of the, the English translation of the Chinese you know, word for it. And they talk a lot about how there is no victory without data. They call upon you know, everyone to kind of get together and make a high quality military data pool. So we think a lot about China's civilian AI sector and they have a ton of civilian data, 
But military data is a different challenge. And so there is emphasis uh, in their writings about the need for getting high quality data, the need for maintaining that data and having the right equipment for that data, and then how to deploy that data as well. So there's a lot of thought around the importance of data. Of course, all three data algorithms, computing power are, are very important. And they all and they talk about how they, how they rely on each other. And they, they can't really have one without the other in some ways, but that data is, is the linchpin. The Chinese military, like the U.S. military and militaries worldwide, imagining future warfare in some respects. And imagining a battlefield where drones or unmanned and intelligent systems are at the forefront of the fight, where we are seeing intelligent weapons or AI weapons that are operating with far higher degrees of autonomy that are really a critical and perhaps decisive capability. And this could manifest in swarms of drones going up against an aircraft carrier, or at least that is a depiction presented uh, that I came across initially at the Chinese Military Museum in Beijing of a swarm combat system with uh, swarms used for reconnaissance, electronic warfare, and uh, essentially saturation attacks to overwhelm uh, enemy defenses. And I think the PLA's enthusiasm for drones is actually already manifesting in its uh, current force uh, structure and style of operations, uh, which through which we've seen drones across every service of the PLA and designed for every domain of warfare. So it's interesting that they say that there's an art and a science to war and that the machines can get down the science, right? They can get down running the numbers and maybe determining or, or picking out you know, offering several options in a, in a strategy. Um, but really, the humans are the uh, can bring in the art of war, the intangibles of war, the the human will, the uh, the denial, the deception, the subjectivity that often wins uh, battle. So so there's this there's this tension in these in these writings about. Yes, we know that there is going to be a diminution of humans in future warfare, but yet humans will still remain dominant as the decisive factor. What we see then is that there's a range of opinions about how that will actually play out. And, and I think everybody, most everybody thinks that there's going to be some sort of uh, human command, that humans will be in command of the machines. How much they actually have control may be uh, a different question. So if you think of the OODA loop process, John Boyd's OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, act, you know, there are some Chinese writers that say that humans will be involved in every part of the process of the OODA loop. There are some writers which say, well, the humans will decide when to engage uh, and, and maybe when to change direction and when to end the operation. And there's other writings which take more of a macro view, which basically says the humans are deciding when to go to war. They will, they will develop the robots and the machines, and they will just let the uh, machines loose and, and, and have them do their thing under a sort of fully autonomous uh, uh, scenario. So there is this impression then that, yes, humans need to remain in control, but how there are a small, uh, a minority of writers which state that in the future, there will be this evolution that will be irresistible, this inevitable evolution to where the machines will be doing the bulk of the work supplemented by, by humans. Uh, right now, it's humans with machines uh, helping out. In the future, it'll be machines with humans helping out. 
China has created a whole new branch of service, the Strategic Support Force, that focuses on information warfare, space operations, and cyber activities to back its intelligent warfare approach. China developed joint theater commands and continues to develop new doctrine and approaches to joint operations. And of course, you have you know the creation of, of other entire forces, uh, you know, the strategic support force, which has network warfare, what we would think of as, as cyber um, and space operations missions, um, and, and the joint logistics support force to, to really redo the way that uh, the, the PLA does logistics and, and, and allow that to be much more, uh, much more effective. The uh, PLA strategic support force is a really critical and I would argue perhaps the most significant uh, outcome of China's recent reforms in terms of positioning the PLA to really contest advantage in space and cyberspace as two key domains and as the PLA sometimes describes them, the strategic commanding heights of a future warfare and the and few components of the strategic support force essentially are a cyber force and a space force or the uh, a network systems department and the uh, aerospace systems department as they're described in sort of terms of their organization and the SSF has really started to integrate and consolidate elements of the cyber and electronic warfare capabilities that were previously uh, less integrated and less clearly coordinated across different uh, military regions and services so it's really become a of one-stop shop, so to speak, for cyber warfare and space warfare, and has really created a kind of command structure and brought into play leadership who can really start to develop PLA's capacity to operate in these domains as an element of its integrated joint operations. So I think the SSF is really critical, not only because of how vital these domains could be, especially in the initial stages of any conflict. Uh, PLA is in some writings described the U.S. as a no-satellites-no-fight military and uh, certainly capacity to knock out satellites and space systems on which it believes the U.S. to be dependent and asymmetrically so. That could be of strategic importance or sort of a first, first blow struck in a, any conflict scenario and, and, and cyber attacks uh, against uh, U.S. military systems or even against our critical infrastructure at home. China has developed the capability to produce mass amounts of munitions and inexpensive systems, sometimes achieving overmatch with quantity over quality. Looking at all this capacity for production that China has built, um, you know, they're going to have a lot of reserve capacity, whether that's, you know, ability to, to shoot, scoot and reload and, and to kind of and to sustain these barrages. I think if we're looking back in the 1990s, you know, and they're in a Taiwan contingency, you know, China may have exhausted its entire missile force very, very quickly. Um, I think it's less certain that those kinds of, uh, you know, that that those stocks are going to be as quickly uh, used up. And, and also, you know, more importantly, so we have to prepare ourselves, I think, if there was some kind of uh, fight or, or frankly, you know, just watching, you know, as China has uh, tensions with its other uh, with other people in its, its neighborhood, you know, our, our partners and allies in the region also need to, you know, at least be considering contingencies where this is a much more sustained fight than than it might have been otherwise. This really isn't kind of like, you know, a one and done fight. And I think that really has um, implications for how we think about the resiliency of our bases and the mo mobility that we need to be investing in. 
China has worked heavily not only on modernizing its materiel and capabilities, but has used a holistic approach across a dot-no-PF spectrum toward a decades-long transformation of the PLA to be an extremely joint force in coordination and operations. I think China will see the same thing, um, and, and you know we've certainly seen them rapidly increase the, the scope and scale of, of their UAV forces. So I think those are the obvious lessons that they learned. I don't know if they'll learn the, I think, the deeper lesson. Um, maybe they will. It's hard to say. But, you know, I think the, the deeper lesson is that all of that was great, but that was the shiny object. Why Azerbaijan did so well is that it did more than M, right? They, they Yeah, they got a lot of great new equipment, but they also had a force. They had the people, and they had an approach to warfare that, that carried it out. And I, you know, have written a couple of pieces about um, Agincourt is the same way. And this is the sort of the second piece I wrote on that, right? Everyone talks about the English longbow as the shiny object that saved the day. But when, whenever I hear that, I politely raise my hand and remind people that the English lost the war, right? The French won in the end. And the French won in the end because they realized it took more than M. They had to do a complete dot mill PF sort of revolution to change their force in order to prevail. And they had to master competition, crisis, and conflict. French did that. They win the Hundred Years' War. Azerbaijan did that uh, in, in Nagorno-Karabakh. It's why they won. The drones The drones were part of it. They were a big part of it, but, but they're not the reason why. They had the people and they had a plan. And all of that came together, people, plan, materiel. So I, I think that's the true lesson. It'll be fascinating to see if the adversaries learn that because you need all three. Um, you know, when I've, when I've talked to seniors, um, I, the material, I say the materiel is great, but the reality is when you look at a nation like China uh, with all of the resources it has, they're working on and investing in the same types of systems we are. So it's hard to see that, that technological war-winning silver bullet. It's more likely that technology is, is sort of roughly equivalent. You know, there might be some advantages here or there on the edges, but but it's hard to see something war winning. And, you know, the, the true edge comes down to the people and, and the plan. Uh, or as I, I once told General Milley, it's, it's the players and the coaches, you know, who win the game. Um, and it be, if you have the stuff, it means you're playing in the major leagues and not the minors. Since 2013, we have a much more sophisticated PLA that's no longer simply aspiring to be able to, to conduct joint or even combined arms operations. That is, much more lethal at the individual unit level, and which is better prepared to, to operate in, in multiple domains. More important than any individual capability is that their system for projecting power, for, for moving forces around. I mean, China is not a small country. Um, and remaining com communication with all those various components is, is much more robust than it used to be. And to me, I think you know, the, the, the people um, in the PLAs is really a kind of a central thing that we should be focusing on um, even sometimes more than, you know, whatever new fancy, uh, fighter jet has come out and, and the people at each of these, every, uh, each of these levels, um, are, are much more proficient in their jobs, um, than they used to be in, in the past. So kind of reviewing the time that I've been observing the PLA, uh, that really is, is one of the shifts that this is on one hand, it's easy to kind of say, oh, they're always improving. They're always improving. They're always improving, but there really was a market shift. China is extremely active in the competition space across the global commons. My name is Duan Lei. I'm a senior technical advisor to a Silicon Valley think tank called the Institute for Security and Technology. 
The other hat I wear is being the CEO and co-founder of a tech startup uh, called VasoSynth. And I don't think we are even thinking about this at this point because we don't even know in overseas environments who's using Chinese technology, who's using Chinese 5G, who's experimenting with Chinese 6G, who's using Chinese smart city architectures and whatnot, right? Connectivity is great for convenience, but if somebody can reverse engineer and weaponize all those automated systems, I don't care what kind of fancy machines you have in your military. It can like, severely slow down how you operate by creating confusion. Or you can even create humanitarian crisis. You can manufacture humanitarian crisis and dominate how this story is told everywhere else. Now, suddenly, both your virtual and physical medieval space is entirely contracted. There was a real clear link up between Chinese companies doing providing space services all over the globe, but at the same time also kind of building the foundations for what would make the PLA's ability to um, operate globally that much more resilient. What the Chinese leaders are, are clearly doing is actually a much bigger game. Um, and it's one of, again, they, they talk about systems confrontation. So I mentioned uh, with MCF, you know, this idea of having all these other national initiatives like Belt and Road and things like that, um, be able to feed both, feed both sides to be able to, you know, uh, help uh, the PLA become more effective. Uh, but also, you know, this is, this is about economy. Like the, the, they realize that if they're going to be competitive against us, um, they also need to have, you know, a globally vibrant economy. And, and you know, China, I think, as you're all well, well aware, is facing some real um, internal challenges. But I think that they're being, you know, quite active in terms of understanding they need to get out there. They need to, um, you know, be engaged in every part of the globe to make sure that their economy is, is as competitive as possible. China sees disinformation and influence operations as effective tools that provide strategic and global reach. While the United States often views it as irregular warfare, to the Chinese it is anything but irregular. It's not so much about uh, who fights on the ground anymore. It's more about, hey, what are the means you can employ to dominate how a crisis is perceived and interpreted by the general public, both at home and abroad. So one thing um, I, I, we, we used to, we become very uh, accustomed to, but we cannot take for granted anymore is air superiority, right? Uh, perhaps in the past 20 years, in every conflict, our country has enjoyed this unparalleled air superiority, right? Now imagine that kind of superiority, that kind of dominance in the information environment and the cyber domain whenever there is a crisis, right? And let me get a little bit more concrete about that, right? So imagine there is some kind of, you know, military crisis taking place between Taiwan and the PLC. Now, what if, what if, right, all the cities that have participated in this China-led smart city project essentially start voicing their opposition to the Taiwanese government, right? And of course, imagine, right, there might be some massive cyber disruptions 
the delay the Taiwanese government's response to the crisis, as well as how it may coordinate with the international community to stay independent and whatnot. So to me, it's not just IO anymore, it's really about data, right? Both in the open information environment, as well as in the cyber domain. So we should treat them as the latest manifestation of what we call military deception. They can delay, stymie, right? Or confuse friendly forces maneuver space and how they coordinate with their allies and partner nations. Remember, this is a revolutionary party that was successful um, in a you know in a national revolution, um, and and its its playbook for for how it made it through that, and now for for governance and and even in international competition, um, is in many ways about to about you know identifying who are going to be our allies, going out and also identifying and within your you know within your opponents you know what are the fractures or the gaps in a society or a political group, and then exploiting those. Um, and, and that's an idea that, that goes all the way back to the earliest days of, of the CCP. You know, you'd be surprised how many local media outlets uh, had been either uh, purchased or subsidized by Chinese money at this point. And um, uh, to me, that is just steady state uh, pre-positioning. The CCP is really good at projecting its ICT as a network through which they can carry a lot more assets. So to me, like, you know, understanding who's using Chinese technology in what domain, in what sector, and so on and so forth. It's kind of like, you know, um, you know, Russian, you know, gas pipe, you know, networks, right? That's exactly how Russian influence flows. Uh, and we have to assume that Chinese influence flows in the same manner. China has a limited, largely transactional relationship with Russia, but their collaboration and alliance has grown dramatically over the last several decades and will likely expand in the future. My name is Andrea Kendall-Taylor, and I am currently at the Center for a New American Security, where I direct the Transatlantic Security Program. The alignment between them is greater now than anyone would have predicted even just five years ago. Um, you know, we had seen this incremental deepening of relations in the waning days of the Cold War, but I think several things have changed um, to cause that to accelerate. The most obvious is Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea. And I think after that point, Russian officials, Putin, the people around him felt that they didn't really have uh, significant, meaningful opportunities in the West anymore. With sanctions and all of the Western pressure, I think they many don't see a future in the West. And so that really increased the urgency with which the Kremlin turned to Beijing um, to help offset that pressure. Um, I think, you know, it's not just the confrontational relationship between the U.S. and Russia, but increasingly between the United States and China as well. Um, and I think at this point now, both countries really want to be able to focus their resources on competing with the U.S. rather than with each other. So it's really important. I mean, they obviously share a very long border, their neighbors. They want to ensure that nothing spills over in their relationship to cause tension between them uh, because they'd rather you know, pivot and be focusing all of that energy and resources towards the United States. 
Um, obviously, they're not aligned on every issue. And I don't think we, we you know, just as we want to be sober and clear eyed about the depth of the relationship, we also don't want to overstate the, the, the partnership. But that said, I really do think that there are a lot of drivers that are supporting their alignment. They're both looking to counterbalance U.S. global influence. The U.S. for both of them is their most significant challenge. They're aligned in their desire to counter U.S. democracy promotion. They both see that as a thinly veiled attempt by the United States and Europe to expand our influence um, and they view it as a direct threat to their hold on power. Democracy is something that they fear. They want to undermine liberal democracies. And I think they both um, largely want to undermine the cohesion between the United States and its allies. There has been a lot of skepticism about the Sino-Russian alignment and not quite an alliance and not necessarily based on trust or values, but certainly motivated by mutual interest. And that skepticism is warranted on some level, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't look at this as a considerable challenge in terms of how arguably U.S. strategy has uh, contributed towards driving China and Russia closer together and recognizing uh, sort of shared concerns and constraints where they can sort of help compensate for each other's weaknesses in, in some respects. So, for instance, uh, sort of the irony that after sort of the Pile's initial reliance upon Soviet military technology and training, now the Russian military in some cases may, could in the future look to the PLA, uh, though the PLA certainly still is acquiring a decent amount of, of, of Russian equipment. And there has been sort of a shift towards more joint development in some cases, and certainly an emphasis on, on collaboration in dual use and emerging technologies where there sort of is a lot of capital in China and, and a fair amount of talent in Russia that might be underutilized. And you know, there definitely have been defense innovation programs that the their two militaries have undertaken in parallel and sometimes in concert perhaps. And I think that will continue to be a major trend to explore sort of how much uh, a lot of the talk of of innovation collaboration starts to manifest in any actual capabilities and, and certainly some surveillance systems, uh, artificial intelligence for some military applications. I think that is definitely within the realm of possibility in terms of what we may see coming out of the high level statements and declarations that are starting to uh, be, become more concrete in terms of partnerships between Chinese and Russian scientists that are happening in some cases uh, quite openly, but I certainly we can expect that there, neither military is known for its transparency, so there may be a degree of opacity in terms of what is happening beyond the public manifestations of this, uh, of this shared innovation cooperation. As we've heard from our experts, over the last several decades, China has transformed the People's Liberation Army through a holistic approach of modernizing its weaponry, force structuring, professional military education, and approaches to war. While Russia remains a near-peer threat, China has ascended to become the United States' lone pacing threat. The PLA's momentous progress in warfighting capabilities and concepts, coupled with a whole-of-nation approach in competition, crisis, and conflict, enable it to challenge the United States across all domains and the dime sphere. Stay tuned to Mad Scientist as we continue to explore our key adversaries' modernization and ways of war on The Convergence.